We're going to be talking about work a lot today. And I'm very fortunate because I love both my jobs. I, I literally can't imagine doing anything other than the two full-time jobs that I have right now. And not just because I have absolutely zero marketable skills. Um, both of my full-time jobs are incredibly rewarding to me. The sense of significant accomplishment that comes with with having an impact in someone else's life, making a real difference, is very rewarding. I'm not saying I'm the best pastor or the best early educational program assistant. I'm not even the best early ed program assistant in my house. That would be Angie. Um, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm great at my jobs. I'm just saying that I'm fortunate because I truly love both of my full-time jobs. I love going to work, usually. <laughs> usually I love going to work because as richly rewarding as it is working with 5-year-olds and 12-year-olds, it's important to remember that these are 5-year-olds and 12-year-olds they are some of the most frustrating population groups to work with. Um, they can be. The other day in kindergarten, we had a class vote. The, the teacher was out of the room at a meeting, so I was in charge of the, the class. And they had earned pat time. So every time they show good behavior or follow class rules, they get a little piece of a face pat. And pat stands for, pat stands for preferred, a, a, um, uh, whatever, preferred activity time. Thank you. Preferred activity time. Um, and so they had a choice. They could either, either have their pat time right then, and it would be only about 10 minutes or so really short play time, but they'd get it right then. Or they could delay it till the next school day, Thursday, two whole days away, but they'd get 30 minutes of pat time. So the choice was right now, but short or later, but big. And I explained this a few times and everyone was nodding. Almost everyone was nodding. Um, so small amount of playtime now or lots of playtimes later. If they wanted playtime now, they were supposed to go stand by the sink. If they wanted to wait and have more time later, they were supposed to go stand by the window. And everyone nodded again. Okay. And I said, do you understand? And they nodded again. Okay. So I said, go. And all of them got up except one little guy who missed that whole instruction because he was staring at his shoes the whole time. And he missed the whole thing. And so he sees all his friends getting up. And he stands up, but he has no idea what they're doing. So he sits right back down. And so I give him individual one-on-one -on -one instruction. So do you want a little bit of playtime now? If you do, go stand over there. If you want lots of playtime later, go stand over there. He said, okay. And I said, go. And he said, what? <laughs> and I said, okay. And so I explained it again. And so he got up and he literally, I'm not even exaggerating, he walked back and forth like this about eight times. And finally he looked at me and I shrugged my shoulders and he shrugged his shoulders and he went and stood over there. He's no idea what was going on. Um, and then, so he went and stood over by the window, completely oblivious to the purpose of this entire charade that him and I just engaged in. And the vote ended up being 13 to 13, a perfect deadlock, which is a fitting metaphor for what my brain was doing at that moment. Just what is, what is happening? But that's the funny kind of frustration that you get working with five-year-olds. They're, there are other far less hilarious frustrations when you work with kids of any age or people of any age. We see kids who fall into the pattern of harming themselves or harming others because they can't manage their anger. We have kids who refuse to do even the slightest bit of work, and I, I don't do well with that. We have kids who are unable or unwilling to listen or cooperate or participate or behave properly. I've been sworn at, spat on, scratched, and scorned, and that's just since spring break ended. That's those are fairly regular things that happen. And so it can be exhausting, as any job can be, 
when you encounter other people at their worst and their weakest. Think of nursing care or emergency first responders or the service industry. Anytime you're working with people, you may not be, your body may not be exhausted at the end of the day, but mental exhaustion, emotional exhaustion is just as exhausting. And pastoring can be that way too, though far less frequently. I haven't been sworn at or spat on in church in days. <laughs> Maybe ever. But, oh boy, which one, sworn at or spat on? I guess it'll be a mystery. We'll find out. But Every job, no matter what your job is, every job comes with its own sources of anger and frustration, along with its own sources of accomplishment and satisfaction. Every job walks a fine line between work and toil. And that's a distinction we've talked about a few times before, work and toil. In Genesis 2, the word work appears five times in the NIV, which is the translation I usually read from. Uh, Beginning with two times in the second verse where it says, By the seventh day God had finished the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. When our God brought the natural world into existence, uh, however it was that he did it, he called it work. But he also called it good, and not just good, but very good. So work is not a negative thing. Work is a good thing, a positive thing. It was satisfying and rewarding to him to do this work. It flowed out of his love and his creativity and his sovereignty. It was satisfying and rewarding. God himself did work, and he reveled in it. He enjoyed it. And the climax of his workmanship was humanity, was us. And when he made humanity... Did he just let humanity lounge back naked, eating grapes all day, engaging in the occasional being fruitful and multiplying, if you know what I'm saying? (laughs) No. He didn't just create his masterpiece for relaxation and enjoyment. He made them to work. In fact, chapter 2, verses uh, 5 to 7 seem to imply that he created humanity because there was no one to work on the creation that he had made. So he makes humanity to work on it. And in verse 15, this is said of Adam's original purpose. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it. To take care of it. Not just work it and swear at it the whole time. To work at it and take care of it. The God who worked on all of creation created a worker to work on his workmanship. Did you follow that? It's a lot of work. Work is wrapped up in the identity of both creator and creature, and it is good and beautiful and pleasing and meaningful. But more than anything, work is to be life-giving and filled with love. Work is associated with giving life and with love in Scripture. God's work brings life to the loved ones that he works on, and that's us. And humanity, the work of God's hands, brings life to the world around it by working in a nurturing, caring, loving, protecting way. Work is intended to fill us with life and with love, since that is how our God is at work. Our God works out of life, out of love. That's his job, if you will. Of course, in the next chapter of Genesis, things start to unravel. And the command to be fruitful and multiply gets trickier due to human pride and fallenness. So there's curses for everyone. There's curses for the snake. He has to uh, slither on the ground and the woman's son will crush his head. That's a portrait of Jesus. The curse for Eve is that pain is introduced to childbirth. Childbirth is the process of literally giving life to someone you love, right? Is what childbirth is. It, But out of that process, out of that work of life and love, 
now there will be agonizing pain and danger. The curse for Adam is that toil is introduced. So Adam's job was to be fruitful and multiply, to carry out the good work of producing for his loved ones from the the soil. He was to work the soil to provide for his loved ones. That was his work. That was his job. But now he would only do that by battling against thorns and thistles and sweat and uncertainty. Those things that marked their life-giving purposes, literally life-giving purposes, childbirth and food production to take care of your family, they are now mired by pain and frustration and empty labor. Good work, in other words, becomes back-breaking toil. Work and toil are the opposite. Work is good and rewarding. Toil is laborious and intensive and frustrating and often meaningless. As I have experienced countless times in kindergarten, I've experienced both work and toil. As you have experienced countless times in farming, (laughs) what's more toilsome than working a crop that doesn't grow? Uh, It's frustrating. Parenting is the ultimate example of work and toil. Tradesmanship, whatever your job is. Marriage, and actually scratch marriage off that list because marriage is only ever blissful joy. Uh, I have to go home with my co-toilers, so I'm not going to include marriage in that that list. Um, the the greatest toil is to have to put up with me saying things about you every Sunday. That's, but really, any work, any relationship that is worth anything at all, any work or relationship that is worth anything at all can easily devolve into toil when it stops being carried out of loving care and life-giving purpose. When you stop doing it because you love it and because it brings life to others or brings life to yourself, when you stop doing it for those reasons, then it's not work anymore, it's toil. And it's frustrating. And you'll get bogged down and burnt out. And that includes salvation. Even salvation itself, the ultimate work of loving care and life-giving purpose, even salvation can break apart and become unrewarding and empty and meaningless if we lose the proper focus. Even the good work of salvation can become toilsome and burdensome if we allow it to. Which brings us to our passage today. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Yes, it's only two verses. If Dave was here, he'd probably be shaming me right now. It's only two verses, but they are loaded with theological richness that illuminates the greatness of our God, a God who's constantly working to bring life and love to his people. So here's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. There's a lot in that. We'll unpack it. But it begins with a therefore. And anytime you see a therefore in scripture, it's always good to back up and take a look at what came before. And in this case, what came before has has two aspects. There's a large longer discussion that goes all the way back to chapter 1 verse 27 and there's a, a much more immediate context that this comes out of and that's the beautiful poetry that we read a couple weeks ago the the poem of Jesus where he lowers himself even to death on a cross and then God raises him up so this passage comes out of those two things a longer discussion back to 127 and a shorter discussion that started in 2 verse 5 to 11 the longer discussion that began in 127 where Paul introduces his his imperative teaching to the Philippians. Imperative means it's do this. That's what imperative means. This is something you should do. And that began back when, when he wrote, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And everything that comes after that 
all the, the, the sermons we've had since then, including up to next week when we do verses 14 to 18, all of that comes out of that statement. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Everything that follows is based on that statement. How can we, as followers of Jesus, live lives that bring glory to his name? How can we properly respond to the great gift of salvation? And Paul has us work it out in these, these, the paragraphs that follow. For the Philippians, whose recent squabbling was threatening to undermine their, their witness and evangelism, the most crucial piece of worthy conduct that they needed was what? Does anybody remember? The cherry on top. Yes, thank you, Bob. Unity. It was unity. That's the thing that, that was the worthy conduct that they needed to hear the most. Unity. Paul urges them to pursue a mindset that fosters unity. A mindset of humility and sacrifice and servant-heartedness. A selfless unity that mirrors the mindset of Jesus himself, who was constantly selfless, constantly giving, constantly unifying with his love. Which is the more immediate reason for verses 12, verse 12's therefore. Paul's gorgeous and theologically rich portrayal of the mindset of Jesus himself. This, these two verses come out of that. It's a, a really stunning piece of writing, but Paul doesn't lose sight of why he includes that stunning piece of writing in his letter. He doesn't just plop it in there, this beautiful poem. It's not isolated. Paul is now beginning to explain why he put that there. Only by striving together for the life-giving service and love-giving sacrifice of Jesus will God's children be able to unify and bring him glory. Unless we have the same mindset of Jesus to, to bring love, to bring life to others, unless we're unified in that purpose and all other things are lesser issues that, that we can put to the side, unless we're unified under that banner, we can't bring him glory. We won't be able to. We won't be empowered enough to do so. And so after the lofty poetry of verses 5 to 11, Paul snaps them back into attention gently. He calls them his beloved, what does he say, his dear friends. So he's, he's being gentle, but he's also being forceful. He immediately reminds them of his authority as an apostle. There were very few apostles around. There's no apostles around now, unless you, you say that we're all apostles, we're all sent. But to be commissioned specifically by Jesus to spread the gospel, there's not very many people who held that office. There was, in fact, what, 13 guys who held that office. And Paul was one of them. And so he forcefully says, not only in my presence, but also in my absence. Look, I'm not with you guys, but you better be obeying anyway, is what he's saying. So he snaps them back into attention. Next week, we'll see what the purpose of that attention will be. And spoiler alert, it's unity again. That's what it will be. It always is. But first, Paul will illuminate them as to how the portrait he just painted of Christ has an impact on them in the big picture and how it has an impact on us as well. So what do these two verses mean for us? Coming out of the portrayal of Jesus he's just um, painted, what does it mean for us? Well, there's three phrases in these two verses that directly connect with the poetry before it. Obedience, fear and trembling, and work. The first two I'll mention briefly, and we'll take a little bit longer working on work, as you could probably guess by the number of times I've already mentioned the word work in this sermon today. Um, and along the way, we'll court with controversy. Exciting. So look forward to that. So these are the three things that will, will give us our purpose for today. But first, we need to deal with obedience. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work on your salvation with fear and trembling. So he brings up obedience immediately. Paul mentions that the Philippians have always obeyed, not only when he's there, but also when he's away. Scholars debate over whether 
who they, he is calling them to obey. Is he calling them to obey Jesus or is he calling them to obey himself? Both, there's, there's good suggestions for both. Both make sense in this context. By highlighting his presence and his absence, it seems he's urging them to remember, hey, I'm an apostle here, so you better be obeying the teachings that I gave you. However, since he's just highlighted Jesus' own obedience to the will of his Father, maybe, maybe Paul is suggesting that they obey God as well. So nobody's sure who he's saying they need to obey. But in the end, it doesn't really matter where their obedience is being directed, whether it's to Paul or to Jesus directly. Paul doesn't want them to obey him for his own selfish purposes. Paul has only their best interests in heart. It wouldn't be very Christ-like for them to say, obey me, do everything I say all the time. And that's not what Paul's saying anyway. Instead, he doesn't want them to be obedient to Paul. Paul wants them to be obedient to the gospel of life that he has left them with. He wants them to be obedient to the Lord that Paul serves. By being obedient to Paul's teaching and by seeking a selfless and joyful and unified mindset, Christ will be glorified. And that is the life-giving purpose of all people, to bring glory to God. That's the purpose of all people, whether it's Paul the Apostle, whether it's Lydia, Lydia the Philippian purple dealer, whether it's Bill the retired bee farmer, whether it's whatever your identity is, that's your purpose. Bring glory to God. And for Paul and Lydia and Bill and everyone else in the church, obedience means more than just adopting a set of morals and strictly adhering to a set of rules. Obedience, the way we use it, means you better listen to me or else. That's not the sense of obedience that Paul's giving. Certainly, if, if Jesus wanted to command that sort of obedience, he would be worthy of it. And we should listen. We, we would have to listen. But that's not his style. Instead, obedience to Christ, the King, is about submitting fully to Jesus' lordship and being devoted to him alone. To be obedient to him means to follow him above all things, including yourself. Christ's own obedience wasn't exemplary because he fulfilled all the rules about the Sabbath and he followed all the temple sacrifices and ritual cleanliness. In fact, there's lots of stories in the New Testament where Jesus broke those rules. He openly flaunted the rules about the Sabbath and he he openly condemned them for their rules about ritual purity. He called them nonsense. He rejected them. Jesus routinely broke the rules, showing himself disobedient to proud human traditions. So his obedience doesn't come from following rules or morality set by the people in charge. That's not what obedience was for Jesus. Instead, Jesus showed his obedience by lowering himself all the way to the cross in order to do his Father's will. And what was his Father's will? Sacrifice and submit in order to bring love and life to God's wayward children. That's what God's will was. For Jesus to die so that God's children could be reunited with their father. And guess what? That's how we show obedience as well. That's what obedience looks like for us. That's how we can emulate the model of Jesus from verses 5 to 11. Sacrifice and submit in order to bring life and love to God's fellow wayward children. One wayward child to another. What was the line in Come Thou Found? Uh, Oh boy, I shouldn't have brought it up because now I can't think of it. What is it, Trish? Yes, yes. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. That's true of every person. We are prone to wander away from him. We are prone to be wayward. But our act of obedience is to submit and sacrifice to come back to him and bring others back to him as well through a life of love. That's what obedience looks like.
Certainly there's rules to follow that both the Old and New Testament, there's guidelines to follow for sure, and we should follow them. But that's not what obedience looks like. Obedience means fully submitting to Jesus as Lord, making him king of all aspects of our life. Which brings us to a very Old Testament phrase that modern Christians don't like very much, fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. That's a good Old Testament phrase. When Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that sounds like we should be filled with dread and terror, right? Be scared, yes, to be be scared of our God. But that doesn't seem to fit the sense of Philippians as a whole, does it? Dread. No, Philippians is about joy. So fear and trembling, what does Paul mean by that? Well, for that I want to turn to Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee is an author of one of the commentaries I always read. Um, obviously a very brilliant man. And he wrote an excellent explanation of that phrase, fear and trembling. And I'll allow him to answer the question himself. He, he writes, at the very least, it reflects human vulnerability, fear and trembling. At, at the very least, it reflects how vulnerable we are as, as fallen humans. Um, what people see in one who lives in fear and trembling is not self-assurance, but defenselessness. And that's the appropriate response to have to our God, not we're big enough to be in his presence, it should be defenselessness. In other words, the phrase reminds us of our childlike reliance on God. Not that we should develop a phobia of our Heavenly Father, but that we should know our appropriate smallness before him and our utter reliance upon him for even our most basic needs. So fear and trembling means, first of all, that we know how small we are, how big he is, and how much we should and must place our trust in him. That's what fear and trembling means. Like a kid before his dad, a kid who knows he's done wrong. Thankfully, our, our, our God is a good dad who repays that honesty, that humility with forgiveness and grace and love. So fear and trembling is about knowing who we are at the foot of an almighty God. Um, Dr. Fee continues. He says, this phrase reminds the Philippians of the grandeur of the final words of verse 9 to 11. That's where it says, God gave Jesus the name above all other names, that at every name, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this phrase reminds the Philippians of that grandeur. This is who your Lord is. He's so great that every name will bow before him, whether they want to or not, whether they are of the natural world, the supernatural world, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess he is Lord. If the whole universe of created beings is someday to pay homage to their Lord, then they themselves need to be getting on with obedience as those who know proper awe in the presence of God. One does not live out the gospel casually or lightly. I like that phrase. One does not live out the gospel casually or lightly, but as one who knows what it means to stand in awe of the living God. However, with fear and trembling, nothing of failure or lack of confidence is implied. The gospel is God's thing, and the God who has saved his people is an awesome God. I love that. I love that. Remember, the portrait of Jesus that Paul gave us is one of a giver, not a grasper. He earns our allegiance by giving love to us, not by grabbing and forcing our love out of us. That's how our Lord gets our praise, gets our our love. He doesn't demand fear and trembling, yet one day we will be forced to, whether we like to or not. But fear and trembling are appropriate given his powerful glory and radiant goodness. 
Um, Dr. Fee continues. He says, Working out the salvation that God has given them should be done with a sense of holy awe and wonder before God. That's what fear and trembling means. Holy awe and wonder. When we, we see and know who he is, then we can't help but fall on our, our knees knowing how great and how glorious he is. That's what fear and trembling means. Be so captivated by his awe, be so struck by his, his radiant goodness and glory that we, we fall to our knees in his presence. That's what fear and trembling means. It's not be afraid of God. It's know who God is and know who you are. Does that make sense? Respect. Yeah, respect. That's good, Andrew. Respect has a lot to do with it. The, the kind of respect that a slave would have to a slave owner or that a child has to a father or any of those lesser and greater relationships, that's the kind of respect we're to have in his presence. Knowing also the flip side of that is how much he loves us and how much he wants to give life to us. So that's what fear and trembling means. It, it's it's not dread. It's, it's awe and wonder. Like, like a child... I imagine a child standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, amazed at the heights and the depths and the widths of his great love for us. That's sort of the portrait we're given here. Awe and wonder, fear and trembling as we work out our, work out our salvation. And there it is. Did you hear it again? As the modern philosopher Rihanna once wrote, work, 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 work. Work is all over the place in this passage. With that word, we reach the lowest controversy. Remember I mentioned we're going to court controversy? It's coming. And the highest triumph of these two powerful verses is centered around that word, work. Well, actually, it's not our four-letter word, work. It's a five-letter Greek word, ergon. Ergon. If you add anomics at the end of that word, ergonomics, what is ergonomics? Ergonomics is the study of efficiency in where? The workplace. Ergonomics is about efficiency in the workplace. And there's that word work. When you add the Greek prefix n to the front, you get energon, energon, uh, from which we get the word energy from. Um, fuel, energy is fuel that lets us work, is what energy is. Some form of ergon shows up three times in this sentence. The last word of the Greek in verse 12 is katergazeste, katerga Katergazeste, that's fun to say. Katergazeste, or work out. But not work out like pumping iron, more work out like work on. And that is where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the word erga is right in the middle there. Ergon, sorry. Verse 13 begins with, for God is the one energon, energon, or working in you. Energon means working. So there he is, working in you. And what work is he doing? Well, verse 13 continues, he is working in you both to will and ener... <laughs> Should have boned up on my Greek a little bit. Energine, to work according to his good pleasure. So here it is, much simpler. I don't need to go into the Greek. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work in order to fulfill his good purpose. It all comes back to ergon, work. Three times in the last half of a sentence. Work out your salvation. God is working in you. And he is working in you so that you can have the will to work to fulfill his good purposes. Ergon. Lots of ergon. Work, work, work. And do you see the controversy in Paul's statements here? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's been a controversial passage for centuries. Millennia. Work out your salvation. 
Many have been tripped up by his word choice because they associate salvation with the work that we do, that we will be saved when we work hard enough. But the Greek is very clear. Um, Paul is not advocating working for salvation, that you can work hard enough to be saved. It's not something that can be chipped away at or gradually repaid or accomplished. You cannot work for salvation. You cannot work off your salvation. The entire body of the New Testament makes it clear that we can never work for or work off our salvation. We are too broken. We are too fallen. We are too sinful. We are too corrupt. In Romans, Paul argues that even Abraham, who in Jewish tradition was the most righteous man who ever lived, even Abraham could never live up to, could, could never work off his salvation. He wouldn't be able to do it. This, where we live, Alberta is very capitalistic. It's very individualistic. It's a goods and services system. And we're saturated in this all the time. We're constantly bombarded with that's how life is to be lived. But even in this system, we can never buy or barter or work our way into heaven with our obedient rule following or moral excellence. We can never be good enough. We can never follow the rules strictly enough to be good enough for the kingdom of God, for salvation. We'd fall haplessly short every time, like walking into a Lexus dealership with a pocket full of nickels. You're way short. You can never get anything out of it ever. We cannot work for our salvation. However, and what Paul means by this phrase, is we can work from our salvation. It's our starting point for a new life. Salvation is a gift from God, and it's an active process, meaning once we've begun to be saved, our work flows out of the knowledge of that salvation. It flows from the thankfulness and appreciation we have from our salvation. And we can work on our salvation. We can improve. We can get better with the Holy Spirit's help. We can grow in our love and understanding of Jesus. We can grow in our reliance on the Holy Spirit. We can grow in joy and praise and witness. Salvation isn't just something we receive. Salvation is something we do. It is an action. It is something that we are active in. So although we can't work for salvation or work off our salvation, we can certainly work on our salvation. And we can certainly work from our salvation. This work is directly tied to our obedience. So we are working from the starting point of being saved into life by the love of Jesus. And we then obey our calling by working to draw others together into the life and love of Jesus along with us. So there's a big difference between working for salvation and working from salvation. If there were any doubt about Paul's intention about working out salvation, if anyone was to claim that Paul was suggesting we needed to work our way into the kingdom somehow, if there's any lingering confusion clouding up the relationship between being saved and working for Jesus, then Paul himself promptly clears everything up with the very next verse. Just when you start to wonder how much work we need to do to be saved, Paul quickly adds verse 13 which makes it abundantly clear that this whole work is worked on by the working workmanship of our worker God. All the work is done by God. You are in no way responsible for your salvation. That may be a blow to your ego. I hope it is. You did nothing. You are not responsible in any way for being saved. You you can never work for it. You can never be good enough. You didn't do anything to deserve or earn or work for the salvation you have. You are not responsible in any way for your salvation. Our God, like his son, is a giver, not a grasper. And so he has gifted you with salvation. It is his gift to you. You did nothing. 
He did everything, and we should tremble as we consider this because it's transformative and frankly makes us look as small as we are. As small as we are, but as great as he makes us. Because no, we didn't do anything. But but here we are, saved. We are his people. We are his children. Again, in the Western, self-made, bootstraps, self-reliant, societal myth that we live in, we don't like to hear about our inability to earn something. We want the credit. We want our independence. Freedom is a big deal here in Alberta. It's something we get for ourselves. We want to own something and have control over it. But you can't do that with salvation. You cannot own salvation. You have no control over salvation. We didn't work for this, but we have it anyway. We don't deserve it, and we didn't earn it. We didn't even initiate it. We... We can claim no responsibility for any part of the process of salvation. He simply loves us so much that he just welcomes us into it. And that's where we can start to have some responsibility. Taking up the invitation. Accepting the invitation. And, and walking into this invitation. That, that's, that's our one step in this process. To, to accept it and to, to work on it. That, that's the one thing we do. Everything else is done by Jesus. Everything. He simply loves us so much that he welcomes us into it. And not only that, once we are welcomed in, he does all the work for us afterwards too. He gives us the will to follow him, it says in verse 13. He gives us the ability to follow him. He gives us the action. He gives us all the work we need to bring him the glory, which is our sole purpose. He does it all. He fills us and fuels us with the work to get the job done. We are completely hands-off with the whole process. He accomplishes every step of salvation, past, present, and future, because we can never do the work by ourselves. Think of the steps needed in the work of salvation. Could we have secured rightness with God by dying on a cross? No, only Jesus could do that. All we could accomplish by dying on a cross is making a big mess all over the place. That's all that would accomplish. We would die. That's it. We were not good enough. Only Jesus can do that. Can we find the proper way to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, which is what this passage is leading us towards? No, I couldn't do that. Only Jesus can do that. I'm I'm really good at conducting myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Chris. Have you heard the good news about Chris? He's so charming and intelligent and humble and also fragile and self-serving and proud. Have you heard the gospel of Chris? Because I conduct myself every day in a manner worthy of my enormous human failures. That's the life that I live every day. As much the gospel of Chris as the gospel of Christ. Only Christ can save me from Chris. Only Christ can save me from myself. Only Christ can save you from yourself. The whole process is in the hands of our creator. Paul is emphatic here. He erases any potential controversy about working for salvation by returning us to the character of the Lord Jesus from five verses 5 to 11. Selfless, giving, and dedicated to giving life and sharing love. Sure, we do all this in order to fulfill his good purpose. So there's a selfish motivation here. He does all this work in us so that he will get the glory. But of course he would do it for his good purpose. My purposes are garbage compared to his purposes. His purposes are good and rewarding and life-giving. Plus, since he is so good and life-giving and loving, it just so happens that his good purpose is good for you, his children, as well. So as we do good for him, 
the side benefit of that, the side effect of living your life completely for Jesus is that you'll be completely rewarded as well. Your life will make sense. You will have purpose. You will have meaning. So, to summarize, we do the work because he's already done the work. We work for him because he empowers us to work for him. And the work that we do for him is good and rewarding and life-giving because he is good and rewarding and life-giving. Remember way back when we talked about Genesis 2? What did God do in Genesis 2? He worked. His work brought life and demonstrated love. Then Jesus lowered himself all the way down to earth and he worked too. And his work brought life and demonstrated love. And now we have his spirit within us, constantly working on us and reshaping us into his little apprentices, working hard for the master, filling up ever more with his life and his love. He takes great joy in his work, our creator God does. He takes great joy in his work, and we are to take joy in our work for him as well. He finds great meaning in his work, and we are to find great meaning in our work for him as well. His work brings life and love to our broken selves. We take that life, we take that love, and we share it with those around us. That's our job. That's our work. Now, for the Philippians, the problem was akin to working in a kindergarten. Sure, they found it rewarding and fulfilling to work for Jesus, but working with others was starting to move from work to toil. It was becoming toilsome for the community in in Philippi to work together. Burdensome. They were fighting with one another. Proud fights, there was selfish thinking. Those were the thorns and thistles that made joyful work into dreadful toil. Selfishness. Where they should have been filled with sacrificial life and selfless love, they were instead getting more and more filled with the sins of Adam. Pride disobedience, broken relationships. But that doesn't need to be our story. In fact, it can't be our story if we're to bring glory to Jesus. There is purpose and beauty to work, whatever your work might be. That's true in the secular world. That's true of your work in and for the kingdom of God. It's even more true for the work of salvation. It's shocking and awe-inspiring to consider all the work God does for us and how little he asks for us from us in return. This is our job. Take this life and let it shine for him. That's what we'll read in the next passage. Take his love and give it freely to those around you, even when it costs us greatly. That's what we'll see in the next passage. Life and love. That's how we can be obedient. That's how we can find purpose. That's how we can conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how we can work. That's what our work is. It's only toilsome, it only moves from work to toil, when we lose focus on Christ and focus on ourselves instead. This life of love is a joyful, meaningful work, seeking the kingdom with others, serving the king and others. That's our whole, that's our mission statement we created a few years ago. That's what you see the first slide every day. That's our work, and it is a joyful, meaningful, glorious, good work. Serving the, or seeking the kingdom with others and serving the king and others. That's our job. That's how we obey, and it's a good job. It's a worthy job. So let's do our job. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this work that we have in you. Thank you, first of all, of all the work you did to secure our salvation. We are unworthy of that. We, we don't always give you the honor you deserve for it. So thank you, Jesus, for all the work you did to save us. And I pray that we would live our lives out of the knowledge of that work, that we would work from our salvation to bring you glory. Help us to be people who are 
humble, who are selfless, who are sacrificial, who are compassionate, just like you are. Help us to be united in love uh, in this good life that you call us to. Shape us, Holy Spirit, into little apprentices of Jesus so that we can work well and follow our master. And we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, co-workers, uh, have a good week working for him. Work, work, work. Got lots to do, so let's do it. I haven't been sworn at or spat on in church in days.